You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Natalia Melman Petrozella, who is a professor at the New School in New York, and also the author of a couple of books. Most recent book is called Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession. There's another book called Classroom Wars, Language, Sex, and the Making of Modern... Political Culture. Yeah, I can't even read my own handwriting. And also, you are the host of a podcast called Past and Present, and this other one called Welcome to Your Fantasy, which I think we might be able to work that into our discussion of Fit Nation. Sure. And also, you're, you're an instructor, a fitness instructor and founder. You've got this health class 2.0 and intensity. So you not only write about fitness and wellness, but you are a practitioner and teacher of the topic. So welcome, Natalia. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. And by the way, that sounds like so many things on my resume. I should be clear. I don't do them all at once. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, those are things I've done, but I'm not actively doing all of them right now. So, Well, because I was going to ask you if you could figure out a way to write books and do podcasts while on a bicycle or something, I'd want to know how exactly you do that. But I think, you know, the, the main theme, I mean, there's a couple different themes in Fit Nation, but, you know, one of the themes is this idea that fitness is kind of distinct from health in the sense that health we think of as a human right to some degree, right? I mean, we all think that there should be some entitlement to some degree to at least some baseline health care. But when it comes to fitness, it's really more of a consumer good. I mean, it's almost become a status good. And you talk about kind of the history and the emergence of this, because there have been times in our history where fitness or physical fitness has not been a status good. In fact, I think perhaps the opposite was true, where if you were kind of fat, <laughs> that was how you displayed your wealth and status. So I think the book is really a history of the emergence of this. And I think you asked this question, and I don't think it gets fully resolved, which is, is this a good thing? Has the emergence of fitness nation or fitness culture on the whole been a good thing or a bad thing? Because it seems as if the more we value fitness, kind of the less fitness we seem to have. I mean, I'm not saying there's a causal relationship, but is it just that we've begun to prioritize it because it's become so difficult for so many people to achieve and because we've experienced this obesity epidemic? Is that what's driving it? So there's a lot going on in your question there. So let's like start with defining this concept of the fit nation, right? And so what I try to say is, First, I'll just say like your question of, is it a good or a bad thing that we are where we are? Well, you know, like we should always be skeptical of history that's like either a total condemnation or a total celebration, right? So I think it's important to try to not think so much in kind of like moral terms or moral conclusions and more in terms of like, how did we get here? And so in terms of the here, I mean, the way that I describe the fit nation is it is a world, which the contemporary United States that we live in, where exercise is everywhere, like more so than it's ever been in our history, right? It's like, oh, you want to raise money for breast cancer? We're going to walk a 5k. Oh, we're doing like an offsite. We're going to go to a spin class together. Oh, brunch with my ladies. We're going to bar class first. I mean, there's just, and there's a lot of pressure to participate in exercise. That's surrounds us and to even dress like it, right? Yoga pants, athletic gear, all the rest. And 
I think that is a really interesting thing in itself, but the kind of thing that kept me going researching this for like practically a decade was how can exercise be everywhere? And yet only 20% of Americans even do the recommended daily amount of exercise. And is that some like massive like failure of motivation? I don't really think so. And so what's exactly is going on there? And so that's like the paradox that kind of defines the fit nation. And so I would say, yeah, and for thinking good and bad, like, I think it's good that on the whole, like, we're uh, a culture, we're in a moment where people disagree about pretty much everything, like race, religion, sexuality, really basic things we're very divided on. Pretty much everybody agrees exercise is good for you. Like, that's one thing that I think is like, positive, like most people agree that we should be a country where people exercise because that's good for your health. And that was not always the case. And so what I discovered is that or I'll just say what I trace in this book is how we went from a moment when actually it was very suspicious to go to the gym regularly. Like if you wanted to work out, not play a sport, but work out, go lift weights, go for a jog, like people looked at you like you were a weirdo. And so I kind of trace how we got from there to here. But then also I try to explain also why we can be a place where so few people actually participate in this thing. We all agree is good for you. And it has a lot to do with inequality. Yeah, but I mean, part of it is because we define exercise as it's almost like an activity that enhances your fitness, but serves no other purpose, right? I mean, if you're working in a mine or you're out plowing the field, like we don't say that's exercise, right? If you're doing it when you don't have to, (laughs) if you're doing it without any crop or minerals coming out on the other end, then we call it exercise, right? So, I mean, is it that we have created this category because we've moved to this more sedentary lifestyle? That has a lot to do with it. So one of the things that I think has really happened that's emerged that's helped propel this industry and this pressure to exercise is that so many aspects of American life have become more sedentary. One of the reasons also that we do have this class divide and who's thought to participate in exercise regularly is that the big moments when you have the expansion of the fitness industry always have to do with the expansion of the white collar workforce. So you see like in the 1920s, when there are all of these people working in offices in the 1950s, that happens again. And you also have all these like labor saving devices at home and middle class homes, washing machines and frozen food and TVs and all that. And so there's this anxiety that the so-called best classes are actually getting physically weak. And so they've got to do something about that. And the particular stresses of what will happen if they become physically weak change over time. The early 20th century, it's very much like white people won't be able to have babies. And we have all these immigrants coming in and they're reproducing. And we have these like weak white people who sit in offices all day and we can't have that. So you've got to go exercise. In the 1950s, it's very much about the Cold War. Like American abundance and prosperity is supposed to show how superior America is. But oh my God, all that driving around in cars and like having frozen food and taking like the so-called push button luxuries too far, as Kennedy said, actually make us weak. So all of that is part of it. The other thing that I think is really relevant that you brought up is like this juxtaposition with manual labor and the fact that working classes have always like, they don't have to go to the gym necessarily because you're involved in physical labor. That's true to an extent, but I think anyone who pays any attention to exercise science knows that the physical work of a lot of these jobs is not exactly optimized exercise. Like you get a lot of repetitive use injuries. There are all kinds of issues with 
doing, you know, like, uh, let's say you're a mover or you're working in a mine. Like there's lots of that that's not, it's physical, but it's not necessarily healthy. And the other big shift that's happening around that right now too, is that, you know, as we move into kind of like more of a tech economy, there's a lot of low wage labor now that is sedentary also. So I think all of those things, the positive way of thinking about all that is like, as more and more people are sedentary as like a fact of their daily life. And as we agree and have this consensus exercise is good for you, wouldn't it be great if it were considered like a human right and we would set up our society so more people could exercise regularly? I mean, that's like the happy ending to all this. Well, I mean, you go all the way back to the late 19th, early 20th century, right? And you talk about some of these early icons of fitness and they would show up in freak shows, right? Yeah. <laughs> that part of the history I found fascinating that someone who was, I mean, we talk about the strong man. I mean, I guess there's in the Ringling Brothers, right? There'd be this strong man with the funny outfit who would lift the weights and so forth. And if you were a woman, I mean, that made you even more of a freak. And yet, you know, you talk about how this one woman, Sandwina, I guess was her name, she was kind of a freak, but also was trying to show that it's not freaky. And the fact that she made herself not freaky is what made it kind of freaky. I mean, I was fascinated by these folks. Yeah. So these early strong men and women, I spend a lot of time on because there's such evidence of a period when like that kind of exercise, lifting weights, spending a lot of time and energy doing that, that was like something you went to see as a spectacle if you were like a regular everyday person. And one of the things I really try to drive home is I don't know what was in everybody's head, but from what I understand about that cultural moment, People packed the theaters every night to see these folks, and not a one of them was thinking, oh God, I should go to the gym. There were like no gyms to go to. Like that wasn't an expectation. And so to me, that's really fascinating how those people embodied such a different kind of version of strength, but also they were key in promoting exercise and they helped to actually move the needle a little bit to change that. And so Katie Sandwino, who you're talking about, so... She was born Katie Brumbach. She changed her name to Sandwina because she managed to lift this 300-pound weight higher than Eugene Sandow, who was a male strongman. And so she was like, great branding opportunity. So she calls herself the great Sandwina after that. And I mean, yeah, she was really challenging a lot of norms. She was this big, tall, muscular woman who, um, you know, looked sort of like freakish and scary at a time when like female delicacy and frailty was really celebrated. So what's interesting is how she both bucked that trend and she would like take her husband and like toss him in the air and she'd have all these like guys around her. They performed together. But what she does, I think, to sort of like mitigate her weirdness or to kind of reassure people and make her not seem scary is she's constantly trying to like assure the press that like she's actually loves being at home and doing laundry and no, 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 no. She's not involved in this like suffrage movement, which she ended up being involved in later, by the way, but rest assured, she's not trying to like destabilize or topple the patriarchy. She's just there to put on her little show. And I, it's funny. One story that I look at in some detail is like, you can see that there's this very feminist journalist who's trying to get her to be like, I'm with you sisters. And she's like giving her nothing. She's like asking her husband to answer the questions. And so you see that, I think, like continuing, honestly, even till maybe not today, but certainly well into the 1990s, where you see women athletes who are in their bodies and in their actions, like really challenging ideas of what femininity looks like. It's amazing. They're doing that and they're trailblazing, but they also often are like, hey, look at me. I'm also, I wear a bikini or I have a boyfriend and kind of trying to like reassure with these like very traditional forms of like feminine performance. Yeah. And it seems like at least 
half the time the fitness movement is about building people up and half the time it's about shrinking them down. So we now tend to think of, I guess most of the time the fitness is about weight loss and so forth, but at least as common is this idea that it is about building strength. And so you reminded me, it's amazing. I can't believe that I'm this old, but I remember seeing some of those ads where the guy kicks the sand in the face of the other guy. And I don't know whether it was like in the, yeah, it was like in the bazooka chewing gum or in the comic books or whatever, you know, I mean, they were already like super dated at that time, but you know, that whole movement was about moving from the skinny weakling to the stronger, more muscular person. Totally. So first of all, that's gender. And so it's like usually the man, right? Yeah, very much. But I do think you point out something really important. So Charles Atlas is the guy who behind that advertising campaign, which was for listeners who might be a little younger, not steeped in this history. Charles Atlas was one of these strong men and he would perform on stage and perform on the boardwalk at Coney Island. And he became a model actually for some of the statues of the fathers that you could see around in major cities. And he was really one of these figures who was not happy to stop at being a performer, but wanted to sell products to help other people develop their strength. And so a lot of the work that he had to do was to be like, hey, working on your muscles, that's not embarrassing, guys. That makes you more of a man. Having big muscles doesn't make you like weird and effeminate because you care about your body and how it looks. It actually makes you like masculine and it distinguishes your body from women. And so this whole comic book series, which evolved over the years, which started, I want to say in 1929, but check the book to make sure, it was this image of this guy at the beach, the 97-pound weakling, and he's walking with his girlfriend, and the girlfriend's body looks almost like his. Some big tough guy kicks sand in his face, and then he responds. First, he can't respond because he's like a weakling, right? But then he does this program, and then he can respond, and he like protects his girl. And the way he responds changes over the years. Sometimes he punches him. like It, de- it, it depends. But I think that's just it's a really important kind of transition point and being like, this isn't just something you look at. It's something that you should be doing too. There was something else you asked that I wanted to reply to. What did you say? Well, nowadays it's more about kind of weight loss, not kind of muscle building, right? Yes. Totally. Thank you for reminding me. So what's really interesting is all these like mid set, early 20th for sure, but even like up until the like 50s and 60s, all of these early fitness gurus, I mean, Jack LaLanne, all of the people who were kind of popular in this early period, they often, the men, have stories of, I was a skinny, sickly child, but then I started lifting weights to put on weight. And of course that makes sense, right? They were growing up in a time of scarcity. They grew up in the depression. They grew up during World War One. Like these were people who came of age before the polio vaccine, before this age of American abundance. That narrative of the like fitness influencer, to use modern language, changes dramatically by the 1970s or 80s, where the narrative is, I was fat, and now I have lost weight, and I can help you do that too. And it's interesting, like I read so many of these uh, narratives and advertisements and all the rest. One of the things that a lot of people struggle with who are growing up in the 1970s and so forth is that their parents had that starvation mentality and would be like, clear your plate, their children starving in Europe. And yet this was a time when portions were getting bigger, there was food everywhere. And so they learned that to eat is to like be a good person, but that also creates weight gain issues. And so then you have this whole industry that rises up to help you lose weight rather than put on muscle. Now, it seems like there's an undercurrent that goes throughout the entire history, which is 
people aren't sure whether these various fitness initiatives and movements are motivated by health or by beauty, right? So is this something that's good for you or is it just something that kind of appeals to your vanity? And I think that whole strand, I mean, it's obviously very different when we're looking at men versus women, but it also, I mean, with men, it shows up with this sort of concern around the homosexual associations. And I think that when it's thought of as being something that's around aesthetics, right, then that's when the concerns about it being homosexual are raised because that's supposed to be what the, you know, women and homosexuals are focused on that. And the men are supposed to be focused on fitness and health. Yes, you're right about that. That like definitely the like aesthetic dimension of exercise for men, like when that's focused on too much, that like immediately makes you suspicious. And that's one of the reasons like, so in this country, you know, some people like think that like weightlifting and bodybuilding are one thing. They're actually not like weightlifting is about how much you can lift. Bodybuilding is about what your muscles look like. And in the US, bodybuilding is actually a much bigger subculture. That's what like Arnold and all them were in. That is so suspicious to people for these reasons. Like you dudes spend all day looking in the mirror, spray tanning, like in these skimpy little like things, like that's suspicious, right? And so that actually is like a very consistent theme throughout the history of like men and exercise that if you were working out for aesthetics, that makes you a little suspect. That being said, your other point, like, oh, men should be working out for health and fitness. I agree today that's like very widely accepted. But what was really interesting for me to discover is that well into the 1950s for sure, maybe even the 1960s, that was really considered women's stuff. Women cared for the body. Men were supposed to have their mind on more cerebral things. And so one of the things that was so fascinating is that there was this big scare in the 1950s that all of these like, you know, middle and upper class guys who are working at desks and taking the train in and driving, they were getting heart attacks in big numbers. And like, what do we do about that? And what you see in all of these women's magazines are articles that are targeting women and being like, look, you don't need to tell your husband this because your man should enjoy a big manly steak, but take that steak into the kitchen and cut the fat off the side. He won't even notice. And it's much better for his heart health. And you see that kind of thing articulated like again and again, like it's unmanly for him even to worry about health. Ladies, don't let him know that this is what's going on. And that changes over the years, but I don't think that's with us at really at all right now. But that was something that was really, really powerful, even in the fifties and sixties. Yeah. Yeah. I remember my mom was the driver of that, you know, pushing the low cholesterol and stuff. And so she would be the one that would essentially be in charge of the health of not only her children, but also her husband. But you see the same thing play out with the women, right? So there are these movements, the concern about the corset, for instance, was one about women's health and their ability to raise children. But even later, you talk about Elizabeth Arden and they would have these kind of studios where the quote trainers would wear these white jackets to kind of convey some medical authority. And, you know, we still have that today in cosmetic surgery facilities, right? Where people come in and they wear the white jackets because they're saying, oh, you know, we're doctors. We're borrowing from the health language. Yes. Okay. So there's a lot going on there. But one thing that's really interesting with women is that, okay, so it was a really hard sell for men to care what they look like. That's why Charles Atlas is like, you can order away from my booklet and do it in the privacy of your own home. No one needs to know you care about your body. You don't need to go to one of those weird gyms with all these sweaty dudes. For women, paradoxically, 
it was really unacceptable to do anything like rigorous or athletic because that was considered masculine, but caring what you look like, what's more feminine than that? And so what you actually have is an entree into this nascent fitness industry at places like Elizabeth Arden Salon, Helena Rubinstein's that are connected to the beauty industry. And so those early programs, which I think absolutely are the forerunners to like boutique fitness today, they are unapologetically about beauty and they very much emphasize like, this is not rigorous exercise. Some of them are like, relax and luxurious comfort. And it's actually like, they'll shake. Like if you can picture, there are a lot of YouTube videos like this I described in the book. They're like these belts that they would put around you in these machines that would shake your fat. And like, you could get your hair done and then go in there and do that. Or a little later, you would do these like very not gentle, but like small movements, like leg lifts and things like that. And the idea was like, this is not like brutal athletics, but this is beauty work. And that I think laid this foundation. So it's really interesting because the beauty stuff was like a third rail for the guys, but for women, that was actually the way in. Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, gyms were these very intimidating facilities. I mean, intimidating in a bunch of different ways. On the one hand, it's if you're not fit, I mean, you talk about Richard Simmons and how he made this less intimidating for the people that weren't super fit. But going back to the Muscle Beach and you talk about Muscle Beach and when, I mean, even when I was in college, I mean, we thought of gyms as these place where whatever muscle heads hung out. Yeah. If you're just kind of casually going in there looking for fitness, you feel a little intimidated by these people who are like lifting these huge pieces of metal, right? Totally. And so that, like, I think the gym evolves and how it becomes intimidating over time, but that remains like a hallmark of a lot of people's gym experiences. And I should point out that in some ways, that's what the fitness industry is selling. Like they want a dimension of exclusivity there. Not all, but there is a little something to a lot of them of like, oh, like once you're in here and like one of us, like you possess something special. Like you don't want it to be too welcoming because then you like get rid of the cachet of I'm this fit. I know how to use these environments, like that insiderness, right? But the way that exclusivity and intimidation manifests itself, I think changes in really interesting ways. So like early on, yeah, you're absolutely right. Gyms to the extent that, I mean, there are some different spaces, but like those studios you're talking about, Helena Rubinstein, Elizabeth Arden, those are like expensive, right? And so that's going to be intimidating in that way. But for men, yeah, these places where bodybuilders are hanging out, these like dank gymnasiums, like with people are pumping iron, these big like pieces of metal, that is super intimidating. But also like not that many people wanted to go into those. Like I tell this story of these two brothers, Vic and Armand Tanny, who are, they, they're from Rochester, New York, and they open this gym and they want people to come. They think it's like really welcoming. And this guy walks in, it's like in the 1930s. And he's like, do we pay you to lift those things? Like they don't even know that you would show up as a normal everyday person and do that. So that happens. And then it's Tanny actually, Vic, who in the 1950s commits himself to like redefine what the gym means and to make it desirable for a much wider range of people. And so he opens really one of the first big health club chains in the United States, which are Tanny Health Spots. And there, they're for women, they have ladies days, they're like very pretty. They advertise, they have carpeting, which I think is disgusting, but that was like a accoutrement that a lot of people wanted. And the idea was like, you can bring your kids, we have tropical fish tanks, there's a solarium, all of this stuff. But it was exclusive in a different way, where when you look at the ads to be a franchisee, it was like 
absolutely no like quote unquote bad neighborhoods. Like you must be in a desirable address because what he wanted to do was like up the esteem of exercise to be something affluent people did, right? So it was supposed to shed that like association with being kind of like lowbrow and sleazy. But you also talk about kind of the history of physical education in various educational environments. I mean, I was talking to another guest about how Harvard used to have these PE requirements. And I think they only just got rid of them. But this began, I think, in early 20th century at the kind of higher education level. And so even if you weren't participating in sports, you were supposed to somehow do something physical. And then, you know, you talk about how this became an initiative pioneered by the White House. I remember as a kid doing the presidential fitness, whatever, and we had the ropes and the sit-ups and pull-ups and all that stuff. But as this has become more and more central to our discourse with even the Obamas talking about it quite vocally, it seems like PE as a class in our K through 12 schools has diminished and become kind of less important. And even in higher ed, it's not always something that is available to everybody as a student, unless of course you're on a football team or some kind of Title IX type team. Varsity athletics, basically, intercollegiate. So what happens at the turn of the 20th century is that at least two things are going on, at least three things maybe. Well, one, you have the expansion of people going to school. And I mean that both in terms of K through 12, but also in terms of higher education. And so more people are in getting in, going to these institutions. And so there's a sense you have to like serve a broader populace with a broader range of curricular offerings. That is backed up with probably the most popular or influential educational philosophy at that time, which is the philosophy of John Dewey and kind of progressive education, which said, and I'm simplifying, but is that to fully educate a child or a person, you must educate the body as well as the mind. Things must be experiential. He had this really, I think, kind of beautiful way of saying that for children in particular, we must not think of the body as something that must be disciplined in order to learn, but we must engage the body in that learning. And that was really powerful in terms of, for a lot of reasons, but in terms of what we're talking about, of encouraging educators to think like, we need this stuff to be involved, movement, exercise, to be part of education as like a core offering. By 1929, every state has some PE offering. And I should say, not all of it was like liberatory and wonderful. Like this is also like all those kids coming to school. These are like a lot of poor immigrant kids. So there was a dimension to it of like, this is also about disciplining these unruly bodies. So I don't want to paint too rosy a picture. At the collegiate level, it's both a little bit of the same feeling of like to be a fully turned out person, you really do need to have exercise and fitness. It's like healthy in a lot of ways. But it also, I think, for the more privileged people who were going to college, which it was still a privileged thing to do at that time, it's also part of like being sort of a fully formed, like elite person, right? You don't just read books. You might learn to play rugby. You might be like a recreational runner. And so you do see in that period more and more kind of like recreational sports being added and recreational fitness being added as kind of part of being a fully turned out adult in this um, emerging culture. But I mean, in today's world, right, you hear a lot of people who are saying, why are we wasting our time with this? People need to focus on their STEM skills, you know, get past their standardized tests. And if they're spending time exercising and doing recess, this is a waste of their time, a waste of our resources. I hear quite a bit of 
pushback at the university level where they say, hey, you know, why are we spending all this money on sports and athletics? We should just be teaching coding, useful skills and so forth. So how is it possible that with the rise of Fit Nation, we see a simultaneous kind of devaluation of it in kind of the educational environment? So they're like, I think there are two related but distinct conversations that you're talking about. One is the like investment in like high stakes elite sports, definitely at colleges, but even in some high schools that I think a lot of people have really good questions about of like, wait, why does the football coach make more money than like anyone else on this? The new school does not have a football team, I'm guessing. It does not, for better or for worse, no. But, you know, so those I think are some questions where there's like, arguably, if not an overinvestment, like such a considerable investment in like a program, which is about a very elite group of a few athletes, basically. So that's kind of one conversation. The other conversation, though, that you're indicating, I actually think today people are less likely to say things like recess is a waste of time. You should be doing academic work. That's not such a popular perspective because we have come so far in knowing that kids need play and conservatives know this too. The kind of like free range play people are not like weird hippies. I mean, they like that too, but it's a lot of kind of conservative people too who embrace that kind of perspective. So it was really interesting to me that at the moment when we could have implemented PE or we came the closest to as a kind of real federal requirement with infrastructure and money, which was during the Cold War, the opposition to that came a lot in the form of exactly what you said, where you had Cold Warriors who were like, we need PE. This is JFK and Eisenhower. We need PE. We need every kid to like be more flexible and strong. Europe is beating us. This is really bad. And they had a lot of opposition to that. But one of their main opponents were other cold warriors who were like, are you crazy? We need to spend all of our time doing science and technology and learning Russian and all this because otherwise the Russians are going to beat us. This is a distraction. And that to me was really interesting because it really was a mindset or it came from a mindset of that time of like mind and body are disconnected. And if you spend time on this physical stuff, that is by definition, a distraction from more important cerebral stuff. I don't really think, even though we have like cut PE left and right, and we were like, really don't have it. You don't hear as many people making that argument, even if maybe they secretly believe it, because we do tend to know that those things are connected and that for kids to thrive academically, they do need, you know, some sort of like physical health too. But that hasn't really changed the way we support these programs, unfortunately. Well, I discussed in a number of my podcasts, sort of college admissions criteria and the elite universities, they give preference to people who have sort of a background in these organized sports right? Sometimes people talk about the sailing team and the lacrosse team, right? Which are obviously things that are available primarily to people who have kind of wealthy upbringings and wealthy backgrounds. And so are we kind of creating some stratification where access to not only education, but also access to physical activity and even organized physical activity is something that is limited to the elite and to the wealthy? Yeah, I think it's not only limited to the elite and wealthy, but absolutely the class stratification story is like the big one that I'm telling in this book. And I think like we had these kind of like 
flickers of opportunity where there was this like big collective kind of public sense that like this is really, really important, but we never realized that. And so what ended up happening, the way I explain it is, I mean, there are different moments where this happens, but a big one is this thing I just explained. The 1950s and 60s, you have these cold warriors who are like, we should get PE in the schools. And I want to emphasize, even though they're the closest, the ones who got the closest to like really implementing this robust program, that program was not like something I would get behind today. Like lots of people were totally traumatized by it, et cetera. But they did think this is really important for every kid. Unfortunately, they were, or maybe I won't say unfortunately, they were defeated both by these kind of STEM people who were like, that's all we should do. But then there were other voices too. There were people who said like, we don't like all of this state sponsored like body work, like fascists do that. If you see like the Hitler youth, like marching together with the communists, like that's not for American children. It's actually not like too much like collective group thing, leave people's bodies alone. Like it was a critique that this is like a nanny state kind of thing. There also was a lot of criticism at that time that like fitness was silly, kind of a relic of some of the stuff we were talking about. I mean, JFK gets it left and right because, you know, Eisenhower was a general, like you had to kind of respect that guy. Like he was like, this is about military preparedness. JFK, like people who were his critics would be like, oh, his silly fits of fitness. He's always like playing around on the beach in Cape Cod or in Palm Beach. We don't need this in our kids' schools. This is really bad. And so all of that, like those presidents did a lot to kind of like sanitize fitness as like, this isn't some sleazy weird thing. This is good for America. But they never really implemented it in this public collective way. So what happens is you actually have these private entrepreneurs who kind of take advantage in a really, I think, not terrible way, but take advantage of this like new image of fitness. And they're like, we'll sell it to you. Like, you want to feel good? You want to be a good American? You want to work hard and see the results? Come join my gym. And so you really have a kind of private industry that runs with that. And then especially as you have kind of like more austerity policies to picking up in the 1970s and so forth, cutting phys ed, cutting public pools, parks, all of that stuff becomes of a piece with a larger project of cutting social programs. And so you have this like fitness industry, which I have a lot of good things to say about, by the way, but it is a private industry that if you can't pay, you can't play, right? You have this industry that kind of runs with this and the public investment in it is not so great. And then that's, you know, a kind of vicious cycle because like I'm a big champion of every kid should have PE, but what happens is there's like a big brain drain in a lot of ways out of PE. PE used to be a much more vital field. And then you have people who are like, you know what, like I love sports, exercise, teaching kids, whatever. I'm going to go work at a gym where there's a lot more opportunity. And so it becomes a kind of less desirable path. And I think maybe like a part, it's not the most dynamic part of the curriculum. Yeah. At the end of the book, you talk about Trump and, you know, he tapped into something sort of anti-exercise, anti, you know, fitness vein, even though, of course, he seemed to be a supporter of sport. But I mean, it seems like within the fitness world, you didn't mention, I think, Tough mutter and those kinds of boot camps, right, which do have a very militaristic kind of vibe. But I mean, how do you explain the fact that Trump was able to tap into this kind of 
let's eat a couple cheeseburgers and, you know, never exercise. Is that still like just a residual remnant or is that kind of a pushback against kind of what we're seeing in the fitness movement? Both. I mean, Trump was really unique in that regard. I mean, Trump was unique and is unique in a lot of regards, but in terms of his professed distaste and disgust for exercise, that really is special. I mean, people of both political parties for a long time display their physical fitness as like, it's supposed to be a sign of what a good person they are and how fit they are to lead. We see that all the time now. Now it's actually Republicans doing it even more than Democrats. Like, look how strong I am. Although Democrats do it too. I mean, we just have had this thing with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. who is like pumping up in golds. And then there's a guy, some he's like a minor presidential contender from Florida who was like, beat my 5K time. You know, so it's very common for that to be the case. Donald Trump really evokes this like almost 19th century version of the fat cat, right? He was like, I'm not some like loser who's going to waste my energy doing triathlons. Like I'm living large while I can. And that's a much, much like older version of all of this. He also, I think it's interesting. He was a big champion of like football. He changes the name of the presidential council from the presidential council on fitness and sports to sports and fitness. And that might seem like a distinction without a difference. But I actually think it's really relevant because the reason that fitness had preceded sports in that council was because it was supposed to be that fitness is this inclusive thing. The federal government gets behind physical activities that everybody can participate in. This is not about competitive sports primarily, though they support sports programs as well, but rather about recreational fitness. Now, that was a huge part of the Obama's Let's Move program. And so I both think that he's like reaching back to this older celebration of sports over fitness, but also being like, screw you, Michelle Obama, I'm going to undo everything that you stand for. So I think it's like both that longer standing thing and a distinct disdain for what the Obamas are about. Yeah, but even though he's tapping into that fat cat idea, I mean, it seems like he's also appealing to the common man. I mean, Clinton also was famously out of shape and eating cheeseburgers and stuff. And that was meant to appeal to the common person. I mean, is that because the common person sees this as an elitist movement, right? I think certainly when Trump was running first two times, yes. I think absolutely he was trying to resist like this idea of the health conscious, kale eating, spin class going, like a feet liberal, right? And yeah, I think that's what he was about. Today, if you look at like the conservative kind of like the manosphere, fitness is a really big part of it. Like Rogan and all these people are talking about MMA. They're talking about getting swole. Like fitness, they're not talking about going to like Soul Cycle or yoga class necessarily, right? Although yoga has a lot of conservatives in it, I'll tell you that, or at least libertarians, but they are invoking fitness and working out as a part of that kind of like very traditional masculine, like reclaiming. And so I do think, and that's gotten a lot louder in the past few years. So it will be interesting if Trump really is running and like starts talking about this stuff again, it'll be interesting how he addresses exercise because I think exercise, yeah, the first time he was running, he could more effectively frame it as this like liberal preoccupation. That's less the case today, especially I think that has to do with the fact that during COVID, the kind of like wellness world went like a lot of them, like full right wing, full QAnon. And they are people who are like really into health and wellness, at least as they see it. Yeah. And, you know, you talk a lot about 
a bunch of these different movements. I mean, I remember when Jim Fix, right, was a big deal and popularized running and jogging. And of course, Jane Fonda and all of the videos <laughs> and the various successors like Buns of Steel and the Thigh Master <laughs> and all of that. But what I've also found interesting is this story about yoga. So how did yoga become so mainstream? I mean, it had to shed a lot of, I mean, to some extent it had to shed some of its religious connotations, but, you know, to some extent its success depends in part on those religious connotations and the emphasis on mind-body, right? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, the story that I tell of yoga in the United States is starts in some ways at that same World's Fair, where you had both Eugene Sandow flexing on stage, but you also had one of the biggest proponents of yoga, Vivekananda, who was visiting from India and who is not doing movement classes at that point, but he is giving speeches about Hinduism and about spirituality, also very well attended. There's a real interest in the East at that moment. He ends up getting a position at Harvard. He's teaching religion. Very little, if any, kind of physical practice embedded in that. Then we have this immigration restriction in the United States from like the early 1920s until 1965. So you do have some countercultural communities in that era who are doing like Tantra. There's something called the Self-Realization Fellowship in Southern California. But these are really like outside of the main. There's a really important woman in the 1950s named Indra Devi. That's a name that she took on. She was born in Latvia. And she is teaching yoga at this studio in Beverly Hills. And she has all of these like elite men and women who are coming. She's teaching it as a physical practice. She credits yoga with having cured her of various ailments. One of the few women who was certified, it's not the word, but who was educated to teach yoga at that time. And what's super interesting is that even though she's like kind of mystical and wears these robes and all of this, she becomes kind of a mass market phenomenon. She writes books and she's very clear to be like, this is not a religious practice. Like this is a secular practice. She wants to be called an exercise instructor. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that in the 1950s when she's becoming popular, yeah, sure, these Hollywood weirdos who come to her studio, they can handle and probably love some of this Eastern mysticism. But when she's doing like handstand demonstrations at Disneyland, they don't want some weird spiritual thing here. They want like red-blooded American something. And so she starts to promote this. It's like, this is not spiritual, but it's mental to help. These are movements to help, she writes for women, all women achieve what they want, beauty, grace, flow. And so she's really key in kind of packaging this like what many white Americans think is this weird spiritual practice as this somewhat gentle exercise practice, which is kind of like elevated in a lot of ways. That's like elevated beyond like, you know, lifting weights or doing something narrowly physical. That's an important first step. In the 1960s, you both have the end of that immigration policy. So a lot of South Asians come to the United States, bringing with them yoga. But you also have, or and you also have this whole counterculture, which is emerging. Part of that counterculture is real interest in the world beyond the West. And so just like of a piece with Reiki and acupuncture and also like non-pharmaceutical interventions around health, like organic foods, you get this interest in yoga and yoga as more of a kind of physical practice. So that kind of expands it out. And then I think another really key part is in the 1990s when some of that 60s generation is getting older. A lot of them have gone to high impact aerobics, their knees and their shins are shot. They need something that's a little bit more gentle. Well, yoga has been around. 
We're also in this moment when there's a much more of an emphasis on like multiculturalism and diversity and and, and this some of the same language we hear today. And so you have this like perfect storm where there are people who are already exercising. They need something that's not like jumping up and down and destroying their knees. And they're like very open to this Eastern mindfulness thing that you can now, like is now being offered in a new studio down the street. And so to me, like a lot of people have written about yoga, but they tend to write about the way yoga was corrupted in this period by like fitness culture. It like sucked out all the spirituality. It made it about exercise. It's like, you know, diluted. And that debate was very much there. But I am more interested or was more interested in writing this book in the way that yoga shaped fitness culture. And what I think is so interesting is, especially in the 1990s, when you see it really in these mainstream environments, yoga provides this like language to upgrade the esteem of exercise. It goes from like, oh yeah, I want thinner thighs and like bigger biceps to like, I have a practice, right? I don't just have an instructor, I have a guru or a teacher. I'm not just looking to be thin, I'm seeking enlightenment. And you see this kind of like elevation of exercise that in some ways describes experiences people were already having, but in others creates new ones. And that's when you start getting all these fusion programs, yoga boot camp, power yoga, Bikram yoga becomes popular in this period. And it was interesting to read like years and years of yoga journal magazine and to see how people were divided about this. Some are like, this is so terrible. It's becoming this like yuppie, like workout regime. And then other people are like, finally, like we can spread yoga everywhere. We can like shed this mystical caste of religion. And instead, like we want it as a stretching program with every major league sports team. And so you see a real division and both of those things have endured. Yeah. So I, you know, attend all the yoga classes at my various universities. And I was speaking with the yoga instructor here at Berkeley a couple of years ago, and it was within the fitness group, right at the school. So it's part of the gym <laughs> essentially. And, you know, we were talking about, well, why don't we build out something like a yoga center or something? And the problem ultimately came to, well, you can't, if you're going to do that, you can't really do it as part of the physical fitness department. It would have to be somewhere else, maybe in South Asian studies, but then it's not really an academic thing. So you can't really put it there. And so, well, maybe we could put it in, you know, have something to do with theology. Oh, well, you know what? We don't allow that at a public university. So no one could ever figure out exactly how you could do anything more than just have a couple of these fairly simplistic kind of yoga classes within the gym. And now, of course, they're all, they went remote in 2020 and they're still remote. And so the whole thing's kind of fizzled, right? The remote yoga is kind of, is not really the point. Not fun. Although it does get a lot of people and like some people really love that i can't stand it but yeah your larger point i think is a good one that like yoga can be a lot of things but it can be hard when you're forced to pin down what it should be or what it has to be like to say what it should be i mean one thing that i chronicle in here picking up the phys ed point which i think is really evocative of a lot of things going on is that as there's all this enthusiasm for yoga you get yoga in schools programs and the biggest opponents of that are christians who are like this is pagan like why are you bringing this religious practice it like goes against division of church and state this is totally inappropriate and so then you have yoga practitioners in this really weird position where there's being like what are you talking about it's just stretching but you can tell they don't really believe that because they're not so into this because it's just stretching but we don't really have the vocabulary in some ways to say well it's not religious or spiritual in an inappropriate way but it's also not just a physical practice and so I think that's really interesting. The school issue really kind of forced that question. 
Right now, I'm sure you're aware of all the different companies that have launched various physical fitness initiatives, right? So I teach a course on HR in the workplace and a lot of these Silicon Valley companies that have campuses, right, have installed exercise facilities and sports facilities and even yoga rooms. So Salesforce famously had a yoga room on every single floor pretty much of Salesforce Tower, which I think are now they became like, I don't know, COVID testing rooms. And I don't think they've ever, I don't know what any of those instructors have ever been rehired. But I mean, that movement seems to be motivated by the notion that physical fitness is integral to performance in the workplace, right? And so they have an interest in promoting it. But if we can all agree that it's something that benefits you in these other domains, I mean, should we be thinking of it more as a public good the way we think of healthcare? Yes, we should be thinking of it as a public good. Like, just like with healthcare, well, I wish we thought of that always as a public good, but, you know, you shouldn't have to have a private employer provide you with access to exercise or access to, like, going to the doctor. There are people on the left who are very anti like corporate wellness because they're like, this is just a way for your workplace to like colonize your body and your mind. They call it mindfulness sessions, but it's only because they know you'll be more productive or their insurance costs go down. And that's all true. But I'm like, come on, give a little agency to your employees. Like to the extent that it's not like taking your data or like inappropriately being like, everybody has to go to run club today. And you're like, I don't want to, I'm in accounting. Like, why should I have to go running with you? I think that's an issue. But I think like to have these things as options, I think it's great. And I think not just white collar places should have that. And that's something I trace in the book too. Like the beginning of this notion of the corporate gym, both as a perk that like, oh, I work at a place with a gym and I can do that and it optimizes my life. But also as something that employers are realizing, is very good for the bottom line. And so I think something can be good for the bottom line and workers can have enough agency to kind of like make something good out of it themselves. Like, I don't think resisting that is like necessarily great. I'd rather have a workplace that offers me yoga than doesn't. But it seems like if fitness requires access to some resources, then, I mean, you're going to get less of it. I mean, you know, you don't need fancy shoes or fancy clothes or fancy equipment to be fit. I mean, you can just take the stairs, right? Or, you know, incorporate it into your life. Do you think the fact that it is now sort of a status good, does that ultimately lead to more exercise and more fitness because people are pursuing that status? Or does it necessarily make it kind of artificial and think of it as a domain separate from kind of ordinary existence? Both. And I think, I mean, I think that like the risk of like, on the one hand, I'm like, people who have money should spend money on whatever the hell they want to spend their money on. And if they have a lot of money and they want to spend it on some ridiculous fitness experience, like, great, better than cocaine, right? Like, I think that's fine. That's, I'm not going to police that. On the other hand, definitely we are seeing this spike in the kind of like super elite luxury fitness offerings out there. The downside of that, I think, is that those things are so ridiculous and like tend to get a lot of attention that they tend to have us go back to that old way of thinking that fitness is like this frivolous leisure activity for the wealthy, not something that everyone- Narcissistic. Yeah, it's narcissistic. It's frivolous. It's just like another fun thing to throw money away on. And sure, some of that is that, but that's not the core of what fitness and exercise is about. And so I think that that's the real danger there. 
I think that if we can like let people do what they want to do, fine. But I think that the important thing is to have a much more robust conversation about the importance of people having access to spaces and time and structures where they can move on their own terms, right? When you live in a neighborhood that is safe enough that you can go for a little jog outside and you're not worried about something happening to you, or you can live close enough to where you work that you're not commuting an hour and a half each day and then you're too beat to exercise. You have room at home to do even a free YouTube workout. Not everybody has that. And I think we both know coming out of the pandemic that I think exercise is like really good for you. And we know it was like a big help with comorbidities and it's so important. But on the other hand, unfortunately, I think we kind of hastened some of this privatization because we shut down parks, we shut down recreation centers and we were like, oh, go do Peloton in your home. Good luck with that. But that really isolated us and got rid of the community aspect, which is never perfectly inclusive, but I think it's really important. Well, now you also talk about kind of the rise of this profession, right, of fitness trainer and coach. And we sing a lot of different professions and occupations get disrupted, you know, by chat GPT and so forth, and also by universal access, right? So with Peloton, you could just have one instructor coaching a lot of people, but this seems like a profession that is not going to go away. People want that personal interaction. And so the job of the fitness coach, I mean, in some ways they're taking the place of the therapist, they're taking the place of the priest, they're taking a lot of different places. And so this seems to be a growth profession, but it's also kind of a precarious profession, right? I mean, you can you get injured and you're kind of out of luck, except for a few of these facilities. They're usually not salaried positions. They're usually kind of gig positions. So, I mean, do we have to think about this workforce and what their future is going to look like? Because presumably it's also something that you can't do for your entire career. I mean, you can't at some point, you got to hang up the cleats, so to speak. So I think yes to everything that you're saying. I think we have to think about fitness workers as laborers in a way that we often don't. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that even though I'm making this argument that exercise has been around forever, fitness professionals outside of PE, that's a relatively new profession. And I don't even know if you could call it a profession because you don't need an advanced degree. Honestly, like you and I could do this on YouTube. And if we got followers, are you a fitness professional? There are certifications, but you don't need them to do it. And I think one of the things that like forestalled kind of thinking about this as a profession and fighting for protections or organization is the fact that for a long time, people were doing this like only as a part-time gig. Like it was really interesting doing these oral history interviews that as the industry really expanded in the 1980s and some people were like, being really successful and finding themselves teaching many hours a week, they, a lot of them were a little surprised because they were like, well, I was really trying to be a dancer, but then all of a sudden this thing took off. And I think that like professional identity like followed on the actual work, which I think prevented some of this, like, well, we need healthcare and all this because people thought of it as a more temporary gig. It's also, I think there are a lot of women who are doing this work too. And there's always in every sector of our economy, lots of justifications for not paying women because, oh, you must not be the primary breadwinner or let me give you a pair of pants to teach this class instead of like actually paying you. So I think that's a piece of it. The other thing that I think is interesting on this front recently is that as you're saying, fitness instructors have assumed this like outsized role of like influencers and gurus and lifestyle coaches and all the rest. That in many ways really enhances their cultural power and esteem, but it makes it harder for them to articulate the challenges of doing this work. Like if you're 
part of what you're selling is this image of like living your best life. Then if you're like, you know what, my knees hurt and I can't afford to go to the doctor and I can't live near where I teach because they pay me so little. So I like have to travel two hours to be at the 6am class. The minute you start articulating those demands, which of course isn't a prerequisite to any kind of change, all of a sudden you're not so inspiring. Well, I don't want to think about your like shot knees. Are we really talking about benefits when I'm like going to be like inspired and lifted up? And so I think it's like when I've presented on the labor dimension of this, people have been like, well, why don't they organize like chambermaids or, you know, any of these other pink collar professions? And I think that those professions, there's no sort of like necessity of the performance of glamour to do that job well. So like if you are cleaning toilets, I mean, you probably have a lot of issues in your life that might prevent you from making a union, but like, there's no glamour to that. You can be like, I should be fairly paid for this work because it's really hard. If you're a fitness instructor, I think it's almost a little bit more like a model, which we have taught, which has been another conversation of like part of the challenge of organizing is one this is temporary work. You're not going to do this forever. But also like part of being successful is being like, look how glamorous, look how well I'm doing. And the minute that you start articulating these real labor demands, that can undermine that. Well, we talked about the overlap between beauty and fitness, but there's also this overlap between kind of medicine and fitness. And a lot of the late stage interventions around health could probably be avoided with some earlier interventions like fitness and so forth, huge determinants of health outcomes. And so there's a lot of talk about having health insurance provide some kind of subsidy for things like exercise and fitness. And if you're with an HMO, I think a lot of the HMOs will do this. But if this becomes sort of an extension of the medical field, then would that mean that we would have to start licensing these instructors? I mean, look, if your therapist sleeps with a patient, right, that's usually a violation of professional ethics and so forth. But we don't have any professional ethics for your yoga instructor, right? I mean, would we need to start doing that? A hundred percent. Oh my gosh. So this is such a fraught conversation that we probably need a whole other hour to to talk about. It's really complicated because on the one hand, yes, I think one of the biggest impediments to like protecting people, both instructors and students would be certification and real professional guidelines and licensing. Because right now, as you said, fitness instructors and trainers are assuming this outsized role in people's lives with basically no guardrails, right? And no instruction or no laws really governing that. I mean, there's like you can sue if you get you hurt your neck in class, et cetera. But it's really a kind of wild west. And I have to say, like, there's a lot of incentives for fitness professionals to actually be really zany and cross boundaries and like be DMing you, will I see you in class later? Like, you know, because that creates this rapport in this very sometimes like intimate relationship. You want to have that role in people's lives, but that can really go wrong. And so I think like licensing and professional standards would help with that. The downside of this, well, the downside of this for employers is they're like, we don't want to have to pay more money to people who have licenses, right? Because that they're now a professional class. But then also there's this downside that one of the really beautiful things I think about the fitness industry is that, you know, it's not perfect, but it certainly has a rather diverse range of people, women, queer people, people of color have really taken a lead role and in some places become big stars in this industry. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's a relatively low barrier to entry. So someone who couldn't afford to get certification, go to school, et cetera, can 
have a sort of scrappier, more DIY of getting into this. And this is a story as a historian, I know that like has replicated in every profession, right? And like with good and bad things, like before we had medical degrees in gynecology and all the rest, you had women and care workers who were midwives. And then the minute that you like officialize that, yeah, there's some really good science that like probably makes that care more standardized and better. Those women get pushed out of the profession and you have like, you know, other issues. So it's super complicated, but I I am on the side, I think, of some more certifications, some more, I don't want to say policing, but some more sort of guardrails because I think otherwise you're setting up everybody for like really dangerous situations. Well, I think you're right. I think we could probably talk about that (laughs) quite a bit more. We can also talk about your book about the classroom, perhaps on another date, but Natalia, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, it's a great conversation, and let's chat again soon. What a pleasure. Thank you. Remember, the book is called Fit Nation. Check it out. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.